organizations launching straight into initiatives, straight into the what without actually looking at the why. Those of us that work in the field, we all now know that that's kind of what we've come to regard as performative DNI. Welcome to the Digest, the podcast where we get real about diversity and inclusion on the ground, looking at the stories and the journeys of activists and allies in the DNI space globally. My name's Helen Maguire. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Diversely, and I'll be talking to all sorts of characters from around the world about what they're doing in the DNI space and their journey to get there. Today, my guest is the rather wonderful Jenny Child. Jenny and I have known each other, I guess, for about a year now. She's the founder of Balance and previously worked uh, in the advertising industry in recruitment. And Due to the uh, frustrations that she experienced there um, across the diversity and inclusion spectrum and her own experience of diversity and inclusion from a personal perspective, Jenny is now doing some absolutely fantastic work. I really can't wait to get into this conversation. It's going to be a good one. Let's do it. Jenny, hello. Welcome to the podcast. It has been um, far too long overdue, to be honest, to have you on here. How are you? I'm very well. And yes, I have been waiting for the invitation. So <laughs> great, great to finally be joining you. And I'm really good. And yeah, looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. No, very, very politely waiting. You didn't even you didn't even nudge or hint or anything. So yeah, <laughs> you should have done. But there we go. So yeah, for those of you who have not come across Jenny, Jenny is a partner of ours. She's the founder of Balance. I will let her introduce herself and some of the wonderful work that she does. But suffice it to say, we've had many, many conversations in the past, and she also works with with some of our clients, um, helping them to implement diversely and to look through their diversity and inclusion policies and practices and assess those as she does with many of her, her own clients. So, Jenny, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a sort of brief on what you're up to at the moment and what your role in your business does? I would love to. So I'm, as you said, I'm the founder of Balance. Um, Balance is a inclusive hiring consultancy. So we work with companies in a few different ways. Training is one of them. So we have a very established inclusive recruitment training workshop, which we deliver across the whole hiring community, really, depending on what clients need. So recruiters, hiring managers, talent teams, HR teams. We also recently turned that into a train-the-trainer program so we can now go in and and create internal facilitators as well. We also spend a lot of time doing audits, so going into companies and actually auditing their entire recruitment ecosystem for inclusion, and then also working with recruitment firms and executive search firms to help them create a meaningful and measurable approach to diversity, equity and inclusion. And my background before setting up Balance was 20 years in recruitment, partly in a traditional recruitment consultancy role. And then sort of the latter 15 years was spent in-house, mainly within the advertising and marketing services industry in multinational recruitment lead positions, running teams, which was great fun. And I mean, you say it was great fun, and I'm sure it was, you know, you and I both worked in the advertising industry, but I mean, what was it at that time, I suppose, that you noticed or that kind of struck a chord with you from a, a DNI point of view to lead you down this path, if anything at all? There was a few different things that kind of triggered me to start thinking about setting up my own company. So number one was 
internally where I worked, I was having to spend too much time convincing people that it was important. And I'm talking specifically about inclusive hiring and the changes that I was looking to make and embed on a global basis to make sure that every approach and every market that we existed was inclusive and that we were taking intentional steps to remove barriers to underrepresented talent. And in my mind, I was like, well, this is a no brainer. We should be doing this. And also if we do it, we'll, you know, be more, be more creative, we'll be more innovative, we'll attract from a more diverse workforce and all of the benefits that come with that. So it felt like a no brainer, but I did have to spend a bit too much time convincing and selling in the advantages. And I found that frustrating. I also saw what I now internally where I worked, I see now happening um, actually across a lot of companies that come to me for help, which is organizations launching straight into initiatives, straight into the what without actually looking at the why, you know, so we're just going to do some DNI stuff and hope that uh, hope that it lands and hope that we have impact. You know, we'll put it on our website and make sure that everyone knows about it. And those of us that work in the field, we all now know that that's kind of what we've come to regard as performative DNI. Yeah. And I saw that happening internally. I saw lots of initiatives and some of which I was part of um, flying up all over the place. But there wasn't that kind of step back and look at actually what are the challenges and the problems that we're trying to solve here? And then how can we create a real mission and set of values and principles around that that everyone understands and connects with? So that was the other trigger point of, of, of kind of seeing things happening where I worked and kind of thinking, Do I think there's a better way here. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe I can make a, a living from that. And just in general, you know, looking for a change, I think, you know, and to refocus my my energy into a slightly different space. Where clearly you're you know, passionate. And I wonder, you know, just to dig a little bit deeper into into that space that you were working in previously, because I think we've all seen that, you know, we've all seen certainly uh, myself professionally working in the space for sort of eight, nine years, I've seen money, like good money being spent on initiatives, as you say, whether they be returned to work. And and a lot of that is kind of PR, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how much of the, how much the results speak for themselves or not, but there's certainly a good opportunity there to talk about it in the press and so on. Or it might be, as you say, you know, around sponsorships or panels or uh, events or whatever it, it might be. Where do you think the, the pressure was coming from internally to make these changes or do these things? I mean, what was the point of it? Was it literally just to tick a box? Was it because there was some budget for it and they needed to spend it? Was it a nice PR exercise or was it genuinely that they were trying to solve some of these problems, do you think? So I'd just like to say that I don't think I've ever in my professional career before setting up balance been actually given a budget for this space. So and that's part of, you know, part of the challenge in most organisations is that if you do get budget, it's kind of on a case by case basis. So that makes, you know, progress incredibly slow. So one of the really interesting pressures from the sector that I was working in at the time was actually from clients. So clients of creative businesses were starting to audit their suppliers for diversity and starting to ask for stats around their representation and insights into what they were actually doing. 
So that was that was one pressure. Also new business, you know, so if an agency, you know, is pitching for a new piece of work, it's now standard to see that in the RFP. You know, what's your approach? What's your commitment? What's your representation like? So supplier diversity from, you know, from clients, and in, in this case, the clients are brands, they're big organisations. And I think quite famously, I think it was Verizon was one of the first big brands in the in North America to come out and start kind of actively auditing their their suppliers for for diversity so that was one pressure I think another was a little bit from you know from trade from trade press and the trade press starting to call out you know the industry in general for lack of lack of action around underrepresentation and the gender pay gap reporting was a real trigger and it really ignited the whole conversation around female representation, especially at the senior level across the industry, all the agencies in the industry, you know, their pay gaps were obviously being reported because they had to, but then the trade press were picking that up, you know, and publishing league tables and really shaming the agencies that had the worst pay gaps. So those, I guess, were the the kind of pressures. And that sort of, that kind of press, that kind of public shaming, as you say, really only compounds the problem for an agency at that point. Because if you're then known as an agency that doesn't pay fairly or that is underrepresented, you know, and and let's just talk about male, female at this point at, at senior levels, you're also not going to be able to attract more women because nobody will be interested in working there. So it's kind of a horrible, vicious cycle on that front. And then I suppose on the, you know, this is something we talk about quite a bit the first episode actually of the digest was with a lady called Jane Evans who is responsible for the uninvisibility project she is a midlife lady who found herself rather brutally out of work from the advertising agency having achieved an awful lot within that industry about 10 years ago and she now fights for midlife women you know to claim their place back in in the industry essentially so there's there's the age side of things but you know, what you have to remember from a brand's point of view is if those people that are creating the ads, the press releases, you know, and anything around a product don't represent the people that they're trying to sell to, how do they know they're hitting the mark? I know it's the it's the really ironic part of of working in the industry, which is that, you know, the the midlife female consumer is a pretty powerful consumer. Mm. If you think about all of the different, you know, sort of products and services that we consume and that we have kind of decision making influence over, yet the number of midlife women working in the industry at a senior level is proportionately lower. So, yes, it's definitely going to be having an impact on the effectiveness of the campaigns that are being created. I guess maybe the reason why it hasn't been addressed enough is that you know a you know it's got to be addressed in a a meaningful and authentic way not through tokenism and so that means that it's going to take its time yeah exactly I think people cannot expect results overnight and running a nice initiative or you know having a a few nice words to say and wheeling the right person out um, in inverted commas onto a panel is not going to solve the problem. And as you say, you know, it comes down to 
money at the end of the day. And why shouldn't it? We're talking about business. I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that as a business. Yes, it's the right thing to do, but it has to make financial sense as well to spend this money on attracting more diverse talent. I mean, at the point at which you were working in this industry, did you also see debates, issues around other elements of diversity? So the gender one is obvious. I mean, particularly in the advertising agency, I think, at senior levels especially. But what about other sort of elements? Yes. So I, you know, I sort of party to some, you know, some really interesting conversations and well-intended debates around, you know, what should we prioritize? How should we prioritize? And also debates about, you know, what is diversity and and do we even have a challenge? Do we even have a problem? And working in some really very, very culturally rich environments as well, where discussions around whether or not we have a diversity challenge, you know, could get really interesting because actually, you know, we were in most of the environments I worked with, you know, very culturally rich, very multicultural environments, very multinational. But that doesn't mean that you don't have underrepresentation issues and mm-hmm. it doesn't that you have don't have overrepresentation issues so one of the biggest problems i think the industry had is actually language and terminology so and the word diversity leading people down you know an unhelpful rabbit hole into well hang on a second we're diverse we are diverse i look around me and i see that we're diverse so therefore we don't have a challenge yet that doesn't mean that a company can't be completely overrepresented at the board level and often yeah. is so just language and terminology as I saw you know just leading leading companies down you know the wrong path to the wrong solutions or just confusion as well I also kind of saw for a long time just everybody being very 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 comfortable with diversity being about gender you know, and not taking it into any other space. So not taking it into racial equity, not taking it into disability, neurodiversity, and sort of just focusing purely on the conversation around gender, which, you know, you and I know is is not going to solve underrepresentation issues and will only take you so far. So yeah, I hope I hope I've answered the question, but um yeah, I, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the other thing I would love to understand is, did you see anything that actually worked? Because you and I have both worked for big brands, you know, pre- in my previous business, I worked for lots of big brands, running some of these initiatives and so on. And, and I did see some success stories, albeit it felt like it was really only scratching the surface. You know, as you say, only really digging into gender at that point. But what did you see that actually worked? Was there anything that sort of inspired you to think, hang on, you know, maybe maybe this is the way to take it forward? Yes. So this is going to sound like a shameless plug for Diversely, but it's genuinely not. And I'd like to just state that um, I've not been told to say this. Or so paid. Or paid, yes. Data. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of, you know, how we were introduced and got talking and why I passionately constantly bang the drum about data and measurement so for me the single source of truth is your data and within the context of diversity and specifically my background leading recruitment what really really works is understanding the diversity of your candidate pool and then being able to see how that changes as that pool advances to first interview stage, you know, beyond and then through to hired stage, the changes in that pool will give you 
clear themes of bias that you can then really create a, a strategy around. And so, you know, you're not creating anything that is solving a challenge that you haven't actually formally identified. Yeah. Also very, very effective in helping stakeholders to understand you know, what what the challenges are that you're trying to solve. It removes all of the emotion kind of judgment from the conversation and it just makes it about the facts. Here's the data and here's how it shifts and changes, you know, as we move through the recruitment life cycle. And obviously a, an aggregate level, right? I'm not talking about, you know, looking at two or three candidates here. I'm talking about being able to look at thousands of data points and be able to extract big themes. So that works. I know that that works. And um, at a macro level, you know, all organizations that have got their, you know, act together on collecting and analyzing their candidate diversity data will be making a a greater impact in in my humble opinion. Um, On a micro level, one thing that I'd love to call out that I saw in a previous employer, which I genuinely would encourage an organization to always be thinking about, was that I was aware of a really, really successful returners program that worked by bringing people who had left the industry for any reason, whether that was to raise a family, care for parents, health, you name it, and bringing them back into the industry after a prolonged break. And it is just a win-win. And Mm. I worked with some of these returners in person and just saw the amazing impact that they made in a short space of time. And just the huge benefit of bringing people in with different perspectives, you know, more life experience. Yes, they needed a very different landing to a traditional hire. No, in the deep end, no, none of this, you know, hit the ground running. You know, these are individuals that may have been at the absolute peak of their career and then had 10 year gap, which means that they have so much to offer but they do need a different landing and actually soft landings and soft and supported landings is not something that most employers are good at, which is why returners programs need a really, really clear strategy as to how a you're going to attract these people into business, but also how you're going to set them up for success. But if you get it right, I think it's incredibly effective and I've seen it be incredibly effective. That's such a powerful point. I've seen it as well, be incredibly effective. I've seen it change people's lives, you know, candidates' lives um, who have families and, as you say, have caring responsibilities and need to earn and affect their confidence levels as well. I think, you know, as you and I know, when you take a break, when you have kids, even if it's only a few months, you can sometimes come back to your laptop and forget how to switch it on. You know, it's just, it's one of those things that that comes back relatively quickly, but you can lose your confidence about your own skills and and abilities in, in the workplace or whatever role it is that you have. So that point around the soft landing and the support, I think is often what's missing. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, you know, for anybody who was on a, you know, sort of steep career trajectory prior to taking a career break, for whatever reason that is, there is also like a sense of losing your identity a little bit. So when you're coming back into the workplace, you may not have, you know, may not have reestablished what that is yet. So there's just also an emotional 
toll that it takes to come back into the workplace after so many years out that needs to be understood and needs to be respected, recognised and supported. And I suppose that's the same really when you think about a belonging strategy for underrepresented groups as well. You know, yes, you can talk about it's not just women that would be part of a returning programme, but the majority might be. But then if you're looking to attract those from you know, those with disabilities, for example, or um, those from a neurodivergent perspective, that support is also required. As you say, it, it's not a kind of just get on with it and hit the ground running mentality. That's just not going to work. Absolutely. And um, from a neurodivergent point of view, you know, I can speak from experience that had, as a person with ADHD, had I had a better and more supported onboarding in some of my roles. I think that, you know, I certainly stayed with them a lot longer, but I was always very much left to my own devices. Let's just dig into that a little bit, because we understand your career background kind of over the last 20 years and, and why you might have made a decision professionally, at least, and the frustrations around that to go into your own your own business. But when I first met you, I think you'd you'd reached out to us to learn a little bit more about diversely you were still with your previous employer at least kind of on a flexible basis and at the same time thinking about launching balance and so on and as I found out since and as you just said you know you have ADHD yourself you've been recently diagnosed with that where were the challenges there for you at that point in your life I know you very well and I know that you have quite significant caring responsibilities as well where did you get the courage from and and how did that impact your your day to day? Oh, gosh, where did I get the courage from? So I think that I am very, very stubborn. And the more that I guess, something presents itself as a challenge, the more I kind of want to do it. Having said that, you know, I have no desire to climb Everest or anything like that. It doesn't it doesn't work in every sort of part of life. Yeah, I think the situation with, you know, caring responsibilities and all of those different things, I just think I found it even more motivating and drove me even more. Also, the more I understand about ADHD, the more I know that actually running my own business is a huge gesture towards my own self-care. So in in what way? In yeah, so good <laughs> good question. How can I how can I explain this? So From a productivity perspective, you know, the nine to five conventional working week is definitely not conducive towards getting the best out of a neurodivergent person. So, you know, ADHD is, you know, quite often, you know, we burn bright, very, very, very bright for a short space of time. So you might have heard, you know, the term hyperfocus, you know, we can achieve in, you know, a couple of hours what it might take someone else to do in a day or two. When we are on a roll with our creative, you know, with our creativity, we can be exceptional. But then we might just need to go and have a nap and, <laughs> you know, take a couple of hours out and then come back to our desks, you know, later on in the day and then hyper-focus again or, you know, do something different. So ADHD is managed well, can be you know, amazing contributors, but being forced to to fit into a conventional working week and be productive in the same way as neurotypical individuals, I don't think it works. So now running my own business, 
I know that if I run, for instance, to give some practical examples, I know if I run a virtual workshop and if I run a work, virtual workshop, I take it tends to be two hours. And I know that afterwards I need to go and shut myself away from work and do nothing for a couple of hours because my brain will be utterly depleted because I will have hyper-focused during that workshop. I will have given my everything in terms of my creativity and I will be spent. And it may be that I will do nothing for the rest of the day apart from going pick Dexter up from nursery. <laughs> and that is fine. And I can give myself the permission to do that. But in a more conventional employer-employee relationship, that wouldn't be possible. And, you know, I think about a previous place where I worked where sometimes, and this is obviously prior to knowing that formally that I had ADHD, but sometimes I would wake up and I would just know that I needed to work from home and I needed to work from home so that I didn't have to do the classic nine to five work day that I could dip in and out, be really, really effective for a couple of hours, have a rest, all of those different things. And I didn't feel like that was um, something that, you know, my employer would approve of, supported or understood. And it felt it felt like poor, you know, it was regarded as poor behavior yeah. on my part to, you know, suddenly just want to work from home. You know, it should be a set day and I should get permission, um, you know, in advance and, and get it signed off. And now I can you know, I can um, be flexible with myself if I um, am having a day where I'm, you know, really, really struggling with energy because maybe I really hyper-focused the day before, then I can just say for my own self-care and also for the sake of my clients as well, so they get the best from me, I'm not going to work until 11am. When did you realise, you know, obviously you work in this space, so you have certain, let's say, privileged access to some of this knowledge and maybe surrounded by some of these people anyway. But when did you start to suspect that this might be you? Probably a couple of years ago, I first started to think about it. I actually always wrongly believed that it might be dyslexia. I've always thought that I was neurodivergent. I just didn't know that it was ADHD. And I guess as awareness and this is the great thing about you know all of the amazing kind of activists on LinkedIn now around um, neurodiversity because of the awareness I started to build up a really clear picture or because of the awareness that they're building I started to build up a really clear picture of ADHD traits positive and negative and it just got to a point where it was tick 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 um and um and so I I actually got myself privately diagnosed because sadly it is a very very long waiting list and the first thing that I said to the clinician who was diagnosing me was I've been immersed in the world of neurodiversity with my work I've heard a lot about ADHD so I need to make sure that you don't diagnose me with ADHD because of that, because I've heard all of this information. And I made her really, really reassure me that her diagnostic process would be cognizant of that and that I couldn't kind of fake the assessment by accident. (laughs) Yeah, fudge it. And then she went on to assess me and I realised that it would be difficult for me to fudge it. And also my parents and my partner also had to contribute towards the assessment. So they had to fill out a lot of information about me. Oh, interesting. It wasn't just based on, on my view of myself. It was only, I think, 50% of the assessment is based on my view of myself and then the rest of it is based on others perspectives and answering a very kind of rigid 
you know, questionnaire about me. But yes, I was very, but because of the work that I do, because I follow so many people on LinkedIn who are neurodivergent and because I've absorbed so much information, I was really, really worried that I convinced myself that I had ADHD. And now I was going to really effectively convince a clinical psychologist that I had ADHD. Good luck Um, with that. um, Yeah. And I told her I knew all about confirmation bias because I trained (laughs) on it in my job. And she must have thought I was pretty, pretty weird and annoying. And I said, so, you know, she mustn't go into, I said, I I counseled her and said, she mustn't go into confirmation bias when she's assessing things. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Telling her how to do her job. That's classic. Yeah. I Uh, mean, she probably thought I was quite special. (laughs) (laughs) And you are, Jenny, in, in all the best possible ways. No, I mean, that that's a fascinating journey in itself. And then, as you say, you know, you, you somehow kind of were stubborn enough or had the courage enough to start balance. And you touched a little bit earlier on on the data point of view, which is obviously a huge crossover between what, what you and I do as a business. What have you done in your current role to really bring that to the fore? Can you give us any kind of good examples of where that's made a big difference for, for one of your clients, for example? Yeah, so I think one of my clients where I went in to do an audit, so an inclusive recruitment audit, I identified that they hadn't actually optimised their own technology to be asking for this information. And surprisingly as well, and this, this does happen, they also didn't know what they could ask and how they could ask it. So as you know, obviously, as the you know founder of, of Diversely, you know that you can't ask the same thing in every market. So you have to get that right. You can only store the information in certain ways. So you have to get that right. You can only report on the information in certain ways. So, you know, there's all these kind of, you know, legal and compliance issues around collecting data. And then there is the context of how you ask for the information and how you send the the message to a candidate who you don't know, who doesn't know you, that they are safe to you know, volunteer this information to you. And it's not going to be used for any reason other than to hold yourself accountable. So that's where I have gone in and really helped, you know, well, multiple employers, but specifically this employer to get the questions right, to get them set up correctly and compliantly in whatever technology platform they're using. And obviously, if they don't have a platform, then nine times out of 10, you know, I'm telling them about diversely and also making sure that the communications that are seen by the candidates that are being asked to volunteer this information really connect with them on a human level and give them the appropriate amount of context, but also help them to understand why the employer is going to get value from this data and what they're going to be able to use it for. And these are really, really simple things that I do, but they are really effective because then the employer can start actually seeing where they are you know seeing what their talent pool is how it's changing and evolving you know through their hiring life cycle and then starting to present that information back to their senior leaders and the people who can then provide them with the budget to have more you know programs and initiatives so that kind of at a macro level is the impact very recently you know one of my clients also who I've been auditing they were asking the right questions but in my opinion, in the wrong way. Right. And so we simplified how they were asking for the questions. 
And we also gave them the ability to cross-reference those questions with where the candidates were coming from. And what by that, I mean the source of applications. So were they applying on LinkedIn? Were they applying on Indeed? Had they been headhunted by the team? So you can see, you know, which of their sources are performing well in terms of diversifying their source of people, but also understanding the shape of their talent pool and extracting those themes of bias. And they went from getting you know, 10 to 20% averagely of candidates completing their information application stage to being closer to 80%. So that's the difference it makes when you ask the questions in the right way and give them the right context as to why you're asking. It makes such a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a significant leap forward, isn't it? I think, as you say, sort of getting to the root of what the problems actually are, you know, where do you stand currently? What are the issues that you actually need to resolve? And having the data to back that up so that you can then understand, you know, whether what you're doing and, you know, let's say you do have an initiative or you do sponsor an event or whatever it might be, you can see whether it's having any effect or not. You're not just kind of spending money for the sake of it. Absolutely. But also hold yourself accountable as well. And that's what the data allows you to do. It allows you to hold yourself accountable. And there is a lack of accountability and measurement, I think, just across the DNI space. Um, so data is very powerful in addressing that. There is. It's a weird one, isn't it? I mean, I don't think there's any other departments in a business. And let's face it, you know, DNI as a department is a relatively new thing within businesses. So sure, it's taking a bit of time to catch up. But for any other department, if you're asked for your numbers, you know, you live and die by them. That's that's how mm-hmm. many people justify their their jobs, essentially, particularly when you look at sales and marketing and finance and all the rest of it. And yet in DNI, for some reason, they don't really exist. Yeah, it's a strange one. And, you know, there's very little, you know, regulation as well. You know, so there isn't there is there aren't a lot of formal qualifications that a person in DEI needs. Um, often they're expected to, you know, to come in and make a huge impact, but there isn't a really clear understanding of what tools, systems, and support they need to achieve that. You know, you hire a CFO. And you know that they're going to need access to a you know piece of financial tech, right? They're going to yeah. need Excel. They're going to need financial controllers, management accountants, so on and so forth. You know, there's a very, very clear, and they 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 themselves will most likely be quite you know originally qualified you know accountants themselves. So there's a really clear understanding, you know, across most sectors of what that profession yeah. needs to be successful to be impact be impactful and and how they're going to be measured in terms of their success that maturity just does not exist for the dni profession yet so it's a lot more challenging for those individuals that are coming into the roles and in every single way yeah i completely agree it is incredibly challenging because it involves huge changes within the organization not just within the dni department let's say or the hr department you know, this is this impacts the entire organization up and down. There is a lot of change management that's involved in the way that people see it. And as you say, putting those tools, those practices, those strategies, those support systems in place and the right people in place is absolutely key to making those changes. Otherwise, you're just flying blind, really. Absolutely. 
And this is why I absolutely love balance and all of the work that you're doing. And I know that you've also started doing some work with our dear friend, Joe Major, <laughs> who I think we we all sort of met together, really. I think I might have met Joe separately, then met you separately, and then we all joined on doing several things together. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're starting to do together, or is that still top, top secret? We want to, you know, purposely drip feed a bit of information into the marketplace. So firstly, I do have Diversely to thank for introducing me to Joe because it was our joint panel at the World Staffing Summit that brought us together. And essentially what Joe and I are working on is something that we can take to market that is based on both our sort of collective trainer skill sets around the topic of inclusive recruitment, inclusive hiring, diversity and equity and inclusion, but is more scalable for the recruitment industry in a nutshell. So that will likely be, you know, in more of a digital on-demand format and will be focused specifically on the formative years of a recruiter's career. So that's all I can say for now. And we're still in sort of development. I'll also have to check with Joe as to how much I can say. It's super exciting because, you know, when we started Diversely, the recruitment industry the platform is built for recruiters, essentially. I mean, it is. It, it can be used by anybody. But there are certain functionalities in there that are specific to recruiters because they are at the front line and they represent so many, obviously, multiple businesses across multiple sectors, whether they're niche recruiters or they're huge recruiters like you know some of our clients are. And yet, because of the culture within recruitment agencies, this is often just missed you know, it's left behind, is seen as too much extra work, too much extra effort. Whereas actually, if you can just kind of slow down a little bit, the results are just, you know, they speak for themselves. So it's such a good space to focus in because it's at the coalface. And if you can solve it there, then you're solving it across multiple businesses and many, many industries across many, many regions, you know, all in one go. Mm, Absolutely. And I think what is missing is there is a learning opportunity at the beginning of a recruiter's career yeah. that is being missed when it comes to the whole space of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and especially, you know, how to be an inclusive recruiter. And I can still tell you what we covered in the training that I had in my onboarding when I started my recruitment career in 1999, because, you know, my brain was a sp- sponge back then and the values and principles that I learned in those first few weeks stayed with me throughout my entire career so that's another little hint you know towards why Joe and I are doing what we're doing because we recognize that that first you know sort of year or two are the greatest kind of learning moment for most recruiters but that there really isn't very much available to businesses that do want to upskill on those topics. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a fantastic focus because I can say from experience that the people that we deal with within recruitment agencies are the very senior people. They're generally the founders, you know, if they're smaller businesses or, or very much higher up. And it then feels like an absolute task to get, you know, the younger people and the, the more junior recruits to 
get on board with the message because as you say they've been taught in a certain way and this isn't it Mm. and also you know life experience lived experience is what ultimately makes you aware of Mm. inequalities inequities and unfortunately in some cases discrimination so I guess, you know, the the earlier you are in your career and also just your life, the less likely you might be aware of the types of barriers that candidates so can face. Yeah, it's so true. It's such a good point. And yeah, I can't wait to hear more about this and obviously to make a big song and dance about it and promote it as much as we can as well, because I just think it's it's exactly the right approach, it's, as you say, what's missing. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much for all of your insights and experience and knowledge in this space. I mean, we could probably talk for at least another hour about all of this stuff and just for being so transparent about your own journey as well. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I've loved all your questions, made it really easy for me to chat about myself. So um, (laughs) I'll wait to hear the podcast. Thank you. And if anybody wants to find out a little bit more about you and about balance, where's the best place to head? Connect with me on LinkedIn. So I'm Jenny Child, Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-E, child like children, or go to my website, which is balanceandinclusion.com. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Or indeed go to Diversity's website and you'll also find Jenny there. (laughs) Thank you, Jenny. And I will speak to you very soon. Speak to you soon. Thank you to Jenny. As always, just some really valid, powerful points in there. And every conversation I have with Jenny, she just brings a, a slightly different approach and perspective to our work, which is super valuable. So thank you so much to her for sharing. Please go and check out her LinkedIn and her website if you're a business that's struggling with diversity and inclusion and perhaps just taking those first few steps. She is absolutely the right person to uh, pick up the phone to, have a conversation and see where it goes. And thank you very much for listening to another episode of The Digest. If you're out there thinking, I have a story in this space and I would love to get involved, we would love to hear from you. Head over to my LinkedIn, Helen Maguire, or indeed get involved at diversity.io. There are a bunch of free resources, downloads, scores, reports, all sorts of things that will help you on your on your way to being a, a better representative of diversity and inclusion in your own career and perhaps even business. Thank you for listening and I will catch you next time. See ya.